2: I entered the House of Mystery with your hosts
1: Eric Shapiro, David North Martino,
2: John Covenfaber, and Al Warren. 102.3
0: AM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm
2: Springs. Welcome back into the house of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. John Copenhaver. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, Al. How are you?
2: I'm delicious.
1: Oh, wow. That's great. That's good. Especially for Valentine's Day, I guess.
2: Yeah. I'm 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 advertising. But no, nobody's I, nobody's texting so i don't know I'm, I'm doing something wrong oh so what did you watch the grammys of course you did
1: me no i get really bored with with uh award shows I, I i need a narrative and it's just not enough for me so i watch like the the performances on youtube or what have you afterwards but yeah. i can't sit there i get too antsy
2: i'd ask about the super bowl but there's no way you're watching that
1: uh what's that i don't i not talking about
2: <laughs> Super Bowl, you think it's a drag show, I know.
1: Yeah, I would watch it if it was.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or did you have yeah, you seen drag show. Have you seen the clips of Rihanna? Uh,
1: not yet, haven't had a chance. Oh
2: my god. Well, you'll have to. And you'll have to give me your comment on it.
1: Okay, I will do so. Yeah, a, I I've, I've heard that it's interesting.
2: It certainly, yeah, that's a good word. Good word. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know why people complain so much, you know, they complain about Rihanna, and they, it's all free. I mean, who cares? And, and Madonna looking old. and
1: I think people complain too much in general. Yeah,
2: it's like, who cares, right? You know, they're there, they're doing what they do, you know. Yeah. Well, so now we have a guest talking uh, about his book. The book is called George Michael, A Life. And the guest is James Gavin. So, thanks for being here, James. I'm delighted you found me. Thank you so much, Al. Yeah, yeah. I'm i always finding interesting people and good books and bad people and <laughs> just uh, it's amazing what you find on social media. It's just it's crazy. Social media has been very good for me, Al. A lot of people complain
3: about it, and people complain bitterly about Facebook and Twitter, of course. Not so much about Instagram, but I've found a way to edit. Facebook edit my news feed and my friends list to a way that just brings me happiness in past years when i would get into heated discussions pointless heated discussions with people about current events and lost friends and wound up feeling bad i decided that this a is not doing anything to change the world and b is just not good for my blood pressure and so i removed all Upsetting and offending elements from my feed. And what I love to do now is I'm a photographer as well as a writer. So I enjoy posting pictures of people, faces, things that I've seen and experienced. And I enjoy um, starting discussions. I love talking. I love communicating with people. I'm there on social media for the exchanges and I have made lasting friends. All over the world, literally, people that I have seen and stayed with when I've traveled. So I found a way to make social media work for me. I I have a Twitter account, but I don't use it because I, I tried for about a year or so to up my Twitter numbers and make myself a presence on Twitter, which was an utter failure, and I just lost interest. I'm not a celebrity. Uh, celebrities tend to do the best on Twitter because anything that they tweet will get a lot of attention.
2: But I digress. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's I, I, it's interesting. I find the same. I think that social media has been very, very good uh, for me over the years. And, and you're right. It's about uh, focusing on what you want out of it rather than just kind of uh, getting into all these heated discussions, like you said, or negativity that really, I mean, you don't need to. It makes no difference.
3: I've learned recently that your social media numbers, the numbers of your followings, really do mean something. For example, publishers will look at those numbers. When I played the – when I played – when I appeared, did an event at the Strand in New York uh, in late June of last year. They pay attention to how many people are following you, and it affects decisions nowadays. And I have a modest Instagram, very modest Instagram number, practically nothing on Twitter, and a nice, healthy 4,700 people, meaningful people on Facebook, people who actually pay attention and respond and, in many cases, buy my stuff. But the bigger the number, the better. Most of those, if you have, um, uh, what, let's say you have 75,000 Instagram followers, the majority of those people are, are just numbers. They just clicked follow. They're not working with it or moving on it in any way. So I think that a lot of those numbers are just empty numbers. But listen, I am against the grain of the times. I, I, For my entire life, I've been out of step with the times. It astounds me that I have made it this far in my professional life.
2: Well, you're still only, like, what, 30 years old, so you, you know,
3: <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of time to grow here. This is, I, I knew there was something I liked about you. <laughs> there's, plenty of,
2: there's plenty of time here. This is just the start of it, so just think what you're going to accomplish. I've been a
3: full-time... I've been a full time writer now for, uh, let me see, 31 and a half years. And it has not been an easy road, but it has been a fabulous road. And it's the road that I chose and things seem to be getting better for me. The George Michael book, I do believe, bumped my stock up a little bit because I was, fi- I have finally written about A superstar, someone who is beloved in every country of the world. There is undying interest in in, in George.
2: Right. And I see that, you know, you wrote about Chet Baker and Lena Horne. Is there something about um, biographies or memoirs that um, is kind of fascinating to you? Is there a reason you do that? I'm
3: fascinated by troubled artists who take lives of great complication and strife and turn it into beautiful, meaningful music that touches my heart. I love psychology, and I'm a frustrated psychologist, so if I can sink my teeth into a story like Chet's, for example, which is so deeply complicated and contradictory and filled with mystery and is a great detective story to boot, and out of that comes music of genuine Depth and sophistication, that always spins my head around. So I get very deeply into these books. Uh, Most of them have taken me... My books have taken me between about three and seven years to write. George took five. I really dive very deeply into these stories. I want to turn over the world and shake it and find every possible bit of evidence that, that falls out. Because I take this very seriously. understand that I have people's lives in my hands, that what I write will be on library shelves for a very long time to come. And I want to give people a fair shake, and I want to tell their stories with as much empathy as I possibly can and compassion if possible. And in all of these cases... My biographies were in order, Chet Baker, Linda Horn, Peggy Lee, and George Michael. Very juicy subjects. And I came away from all of those books liking those people. Sometimes biographers grow to hate their subjects and lose patience with them entirely, but... I'm fascinated by the flawed humanity of these people.
2: It's what made them great as artists. You can't remove that stuff. Yeah, and I think that that's with so many great artists that have been around, you know, in, in, through the years. Um, now, George Michael, what made you focus on him in particular? Was there something about him or a story you heard? Or what drew you into that to, enough to make you decide to spend five years of your life putting together a book. During George's white-hot
3: commercial heyday from more or less 1985 to 1990-91, I wasn't that interested in George Michael. I wasn't that interested in commercial pop music at all. My head was in the past. Classic pop singers, jazz, cabaret, older stuff. But speaking of older, in 1996, George released a beautiful album called Older, which was almost like a diary of loss and pain. He had lost the love of his life, this beautiful young Brazilian man to AIDS after they had been together for only a year and a half. George felt that this angel from on high had descended into his life and then been plucked away. And... He was devastated by it and he, once he was, Anselmo died in 1993 and in 1995 George was working on that album and it was a torturous experience for him putting that album together and out of it came music that I will listen to forever. I thought that it was the most revealing, most honest thing that George had ever done. A beautiful, sad album. Uh, It was a bomb in this country. It was not at all the album that people wanted George Michael to follow up Faith and Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1. There was never a Volume 2 with. And, in fact, George was already on the skids commercially by that time. The album was number one in England because almost everything he ever did was number one there. Popular in other parts of Europe. But that album made me feel very close to George Michael and even protective of him in a funny way. We never met, but years passed and I always wanted to write something about him. And then I was in Yonkers, New York, where my family lives for on Christmas Day of 2016. And the news came in that George had died. And at that moment... I thought I needed another book, subject, and I thought, well, everybody's going to want to write this, and some big writer will beat me to it, but I've got to try. As it turned out, I was the only person, as far as I know, who was floating a proposal for that book, and it was not even an easy sell. I was astonished. I thought it would be the no-brainer easy sell of my life, but it was not until... The contract is dated May the 1st, 2017, so January, February, March, April. It took several months for us to get the deal with Abrams, in fact, nice old New York publisher. And uh, from that point on, I was embroiled in the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It was, um, it was very, very difficult on a number of levels to, to get that book done. But in the end, I wrote the book that I had set out to write.
2: Well, what, what was the most difficult thing? Is it is it talking to people, doing the research, um, finding information? Like, what, what do you find the most difficult? Getting
3: people to say yes to me. In the end, I interviewed about 250 people, but I would say at least that many people ignored me or said no to me. And I learned that there is a big difference between a legend, and a superstar. The other people I had written books about were legends, and those who knew them seemed to welcome talking about them. But superstars are at a level of wealth and fame and protection that's entirely different. And so the inner people in the innermost circle, the people who were in the will, for example, I didn't get to nearly any of those it all turned out for the best, though, Al, because I found that a lot of those people that I was pursuing hard when they did speak to somebody, it just wasn't very interesting uh, or it was superficial. It wasn't the kind of deep insight that I wanted, and mostly the, the I, I wanted people to open up and really reveal who George Michael was to me, and I... And, and I was disappointed in a lot of the comments I read about him from people like Elton John, not Boy George, Boy George stuff on, I never got to Boy George, uh, but his, his uh, comments on George are really interesting. Um, they were, he was madly jealous of George Michael and uh, had a lot of smart, bitchy comments to make about George in other places. Um Family members, close close friends uh I got a few of them, but in the end, the people that I found the musicians, people who had worked on individual projects with him, record company people uh, etc even observers of George michael people who 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 may have only met him once, some people who never met him at all but who had the most uh probing and thoughtful comments on George especially George's place in the gay landscape of his lifetime because that's a very important theme of this book what it was like to be a gay guy of George's generation he was born in 1963 and uh how and and the challenges to put it mildly of going after superstardom while being in the closet it's young gay kids
1: of today have no idea what it was like VCU I teach a queer lit class and it's interesting to speak oh great yeah it's really interesting they're you know young in their early twenties for the most part and um, their concept of even you know what it was like to be you know George Michael like that they have no they really don't have any concept of that and so it is true. It's it's very different and, and relatively recently, I think.
3: It sounds like you're helping them in the off in the right direction though. I think it's very important to know on whose shoulders we stand. I don't want young people to have to suffer the way the previous generations suffered. But I think it's very important to know who opened a door for
1: you to live the life you're now living.
3: And reading and, and knowledge of literature and history is crucial to that.
1: Yeah, it really is. And, um, and and generally, they're open to it. It's just they haven't been exposed to it. It's just one of those things. Just because you you know identify a certain way doesn't mean suddenly like you know the, the history is uploaded into you, and it really does skew your your point of view. Um, and you and sort of a, sometimes I think a misunderstanding between um the uh, the different generations of of queer people out there, gay people, or whatever. Um, you know, I think that's, that's really true.
3: I got the sense, I only, I, I never met Larry Kramer, but Larry Kramer was such a warrior. Being a warrior was in his DNA, and it was exactly what was needed in his time in the early years of the AIDS crisis. But I got the feeling that in later years, when things got better with AIDS, and it no, it, it had ceased to be... The same life and death crisis that it had been. I, I sensed, um, a kind of lost or empty or uh, frustrated, even angry quality in certain people like Larry Kramer because Larry Kramer lived his life with his, with his fists up. And I. I, it was odd to, to watch him looking around at a vastly different landscape that he had done a lot, of course, to improve, but he wanted people to always have to be on their guard, always fighting, always ready. And I think he had a hard time watching young gay people reap the fruits of what he had fought for.
1: Yeah, I wonder what he would think. Now <laughs> yeah, well, it's been such a different landscape. Now, how does this, um, I mean, can you talk a little bit about George Michael and what his particular sort of you know, complexities in this area are, I guess is the best way of putting it?
3: His family heritage was Greek and British, and on the Greek side, Greek Orthodox. And his father was, Jack was his father's Anglicized nickname, was a self-made man and a success story who had come from a dirt road village in Cyprus to North London and become a successful restaurateur and a family man. And he had the homophobia that men of his generation had, but a little bit worse because of the Greek Orthodox background. And so George Michael grew up... It was George and two sisters... And George grew up surrounded by the homophobia of the day, not only in the house, but out in the world. And he knew that he was different. And like so many young gay kids who know that they're different, they immediately sense that something is wrong about this, and, and, and people are not going to like me if they find out. Uh, a few years later, he was surrounded by on the streets of London at newsstands with tabloid newspapers with AIDS horror stories splashed all over them. Simultaneous to all of this, his ambitions were developing. He knew he had a talent. He was desperate to prove himself on a big, big scale. And he very quickly figured out that in order to get where he wanted to get, he was going to have to hide his sexual identity. And so he created a George Michael doll, basically, and that is what we saw: this hyper-masculine biker dude with stubble and 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 enormous butchness. It's it, it was it's so butch that it's almost a gay cliche. It was a biker dude look, and yet this is what proved to be this and his talent are what proved to be the ticket to worldwide. Dominance. In 1988, George was the the most successful pop star in the world, but he knew, as untold tens and thousands and perhaps even millions of girls screamed for him out there, he knew that he was living a lie. He wondered if he would ever be able to find real love under these circumstances while holding on to the career that he also desperately wanted. And this created all kinds of big problems for George Michael.
2: So what was the biggest surprise you learned about George that you weren't expecting, maybe?
3: I learned a lot about the degree of George's self-hatred, sadly. The fact that he didn't like what he saw in the mirror, ever. The fact that he had self-hatred so ingrained in him from childhood as a lot of gay people of his and prior generations had because of the fact that they grew up in these at these um, in, in, an, in an age when you had so much working against you if you were gay and he he had thought, as people do who pursue stardom at that level, I think he felt that the love of millions of strangers, the approval of millions of strangers, would make up for what was lacking in his, in his heart. And then they find out that it doesn't. Uh, one of the first big interviews I scored, and it was one of the very best I did for my book, was with David Geffen. And David Geffen said, and I quote this somewhere in my book, he said, if you don't like yourself, it doesn't matter how many people are screaming for you and how hot they think you are and how great they think you are. You're not going to believe them. In fact, you may even resent them or feel that they're lying to you. So um, George was a lovely man by all reports. Uh, I don't, Think I met anybody in the course of my book who had known him who didn't like him. He had a genuine sweetness about him. He had a big heart. He had empathy. Aside from, despite the fact that he was living in this unimaginable stratosphere of wealth and fame, he had suffered enough in his life so that he he had empathy. And one of the loveliest things about George. Through, almost throughout his adult life, right to the end, is that he, he was an enormous philanthropist, especially in the period when his career started going off the rails in the mid to late 90s. George gave away untold millions of pounds to help friends of his who were in trouble Absolute strangers who were in trouble. People he saw on TV shows who were in need. A bar, female bartender in a, in a pub where he, he was whose story he somehow overheard. Uh, This gave George a great sense of, uh, I think perhaps even a more meaningful sense of purpose than his career did. Do
1: you think that, um, I mean, since you've covered sort of personalities that have – are legends or superstars like George Michael, this sort of desire for love from an audience and sort of the way that it seems to be parallel, a kind of lack of self-worth or, or, or even sometimes self-loathing, I mean, do you think that's a trend? I mean, is there some connection between desire for stardom and, and not liking yourself very much? Or is, that, or is that wrong thinking on my part?
3: No, it's spot on and George said the same thing himself. Again, there's I have a quote of him in my in the early pages of my book and he said that he thought that in cases of superstars, the, 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 what was missing in them, the, the, the empty spaces in them, were more significant than what was there, like talent. In other words, they were driven to get where they did because they were damaged souls who were so very needy. How many times have we seen that scenario played out with superstars who were miserably unhappy and uh, and lead lives and needy, needy, uh, and and they lead the most privileged lives imaginable uh it's it's really fascinating the pro, the the sadness with george's career i guess is that he he wasn't nearly as prolific as we wish he had been he only released six albums under his own name uh and the Wham! period was separate, of course, but there were only six George Michael solo albums and videos and singles and, and stuff. But two of his great idols were Elton John and Stevie Wonder, who were so prolific you could not keep up with them. And George, especially after the older period, I can tell you his recorded history. He, the older came out in '96. And then an album of standards that was a flop pretty much everywhere called Songs from the Last Century. That was 99, and then five years passed before he released an album appropriately called Patience. And then After Patience is uh, a live album from his beautiful Symphonic tour, and that album came out in something like 2013, 14, I forget which And then he died in 2016. But songwriting was becoming harder and harder for George, Uh, agonizing, in fact. And a lot of this was tied up with drugs, unfortunately.
2: Do you think it was a complete surprise how he died? Like, was this something totally unexpected on his part or the people closest to him? The only
3: surprise is that it didn't happen sooner because George had been self-destructive for so long. He started out by becoming a full-time stoner. He he was into pot, and he stayed high every day, pretty much all all of his waking hours. And then he moved on to the hard stuff after that, Uh, specifically GHB and, and, to a lesser degree, crack cocaine. But I think GHB is the drug that really did him in. This and all of that is in in, in conjunction with, uh, he was never really that much of a drinker, but uh, cigarettes and lack of other kinds of self-maintenance like exercise and proper diet and so forth. Great depression. He suffered greatly from depression. And by the time George was nearing his end. He was just, he was spent. He was done. He still had a few projects going. Most of them were legacy projects. He was working on a, yet another documentary about his life that came out posthumously. And he had projects involving his past catalog in mind. But I think George by that time knew that he was not going to have new music to make. Uh, he had said everything that he could possibly say, and, and slender though his catalog is, there is so much in it that still touches people and became a permanent part of the lives of the people who were around for it, my own, my own life included.
2: So, so how, how do you think uh, writing and doing this book and the research and and finally getting it published, but how, how has this book changed you? That's a great question. It was an endurance
3: contest, a, a, cha- a big challenge for me like none I'd experienced before. I had to deal with a lot of I don't have a thick skin. I wish I did. My skin is no thicker now than it was when I started this book. But I had to deal with lots and lots of getting ignored and lots and lots of no's. I had to push myself to a degree that I never really had before. I had to learn a lot of George's musical world almost from scratch. I didn't hardly know anything at all about 80s British pop for example and I I'm supposed to be some kind of musical authority and I was thinking I I can't embarrass myself I cannot make lame comments about this very important fascinating era of pop and not come through somehow so I worked very very hard and interviewed loads of people who were more knowledgeable about that stuff than I in order to come up with the perspective that I did. By the end of the book, I was, I felt a, a great sense of relief and a great sense of accomplishment that I had pulled it off, because there were times during the, the writing of this book when I was really worried about whether I would be able to do what I'd set out to do. And I did, and as I said earlier, in the end, I, I had written the book that I set out to write. And I feel that I wrote an honest and empathetic book about a man who was in a lot of trouble a lot of deep emotional trouble and was floundering throughout a lot of his life and beside but but despite all of that he he touched the hearts of millions of people what an accomplishment he he didn't write 30 songs that that made it in into you know permanent history uh, he he the number of that is fewer but but how many musicians have written even one song to compare with the power of freedom 90 or or careless whisper or anything on the Faith album and anything on the Listen Without Prejudice album or, or on the older album. Those, those albums are, in fact, now that I think about it, uniformly wonderful albums filled with one gem after another. So I will – let me just that, – that figure that I just gave of 30 or 40, nah, he made it. He did make it. And so how am I different for the experience You know, Alan, I think that um, the great achievement in life, or maybe the great challenge in life, is to just keep going. Keep doing the thing that you love to do. And being a freelance writer means a lot of kicks in the stomach. It's just the way it is. Nobody said it would be easy. I made it through a tough project. It was very well-received. It, uh, it still has quite a bit of life in it. It's being published in other countries and the word definitive was applied to my book more than once. and that is my goal because when I write one of these books, I want to write it forever, for all time. I want that I want my book to be so good that there's just that nobody could do better than that. That is what I aspire to in
1: writing these books. When you're, you know, putting together a book like this and you have uh, such a um, like potent and powerful figure at the center of it, like George Michael, uh, you know, how do you balance your own feelings about him? How do you create, you know, I'm a fiction writer, so I'm always thinking about how do I balance, how do I make these characters feel um like complex and multi-layered and but I'm sure that you know in, in certainly in a different way, you must go through some of those same thing the same feelings about you know the, the character of George Michael that you're um, you're constructing for readers I mean what what sort of process did you go through for that
3: George was it was almost never dislikable, but he was exasperating so there were times when I lost patience with George, but the the most important word for a biographer, in my opinion, and I've used it before, is empathy. If you don't have empathy with your subject, if you can't find empathy with your subject, then I don't think you should be writing the book. Because otherwise, you may find yourself being judgmental of what they... or moralizing of, of the way they lived. And that's not, that's not helpful... You have to find a way to put yourself in your subject's shoes. And if you can do that, it will color your writing with compassion. And that is very important to me. Not everybody gets to write a biography about a likable subject. And I consider myself neither um, an apologist nor a judge. I, I don't want to be in the judgment seat in, in life. I, I want to, but I do want to tell honest stories about flawed, in, fascinating flawed individuals. It's really the flaws that, that, that create the, 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 the heart of almost anybody's work. I'm talking about the psychological Weaknesses and the and the pain and all of those things that to me give the the third dimension to a great singer. For example, um, I couldn't write a book about oh let's see Fred Astaire, the great Fred Astaire, because Fred's life was pretty well adjusted and normal, and that's not what I, that's not what I relate to. Uh, there's not any kind of detective story. There's, you, there's not much need for psychoanalysis in a story like that. And the, and then the work as impeccable and unmatchable as Fred Astaire was, I love psychological dimension. I love listening to a singer like Peggy Lee and hearing all these different strains of Conflicting emotion going on when they sing, and that's that's what touches me. I want to be fair to the people that I write about, but I have to tell the truth. I'm not here to whitewash anything. Anyway, that's that's my guiding principle.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like I mean these complex personalities also make for great storytelling, right? So,
3: absolutely.
1: Um, because, like, Fred Astaire is a, an amazing performer, and uh, but maybe not you know, his life isn't a great story. So,
3: <laughs> I do have um, great taste in subjects, if I say so myself. And aside from my books, I've written hundreds of articles about people, people like the ones that I've read biographies of. And uh, some, and in those cases, it's just an article. It could be 1,200 words. It could be 2,000 words. I have less space in order to flesh out this story. But, but um, for years for the New York Times and occasionally up to this day, I write uh, profiles of artists that interest me. And so I've gotten to do a lot of fascinating people for the times, like Annie Lennox and Nina Simone and Miriam McCabe and uh, Holly Bergen, whom I I knew quite well. And I've, I've written profiles of all sorts of interesting people. I, I tend to be drawn to the women more than the men, as singers, certainly. Women's voices tend to touch me more than men's voices do because women – tend to have fewer emotional blockages than men do in terms of singing from their heart. Um, So the sound of a woman's voice has always been a very comforting thing for me.
1: That's really interesting. I have a very similar feeling myself. (laughs) Oh, good.
3: Who do you love to listen to?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, I mean, I'm thinking contemporary folks um, like Sharon Van Eaton, I guess. Oh, yes. I've
2: met her. Yeah. Oh, Great.
1: wonderful. Wow.
2: <laughs> when someone picks up your book, takes it home, what is it you hope that they, they take away from the book? What is it you're you're hoping?
3: Great question. That's a question I sometimes ask people myself. I want to, first of all, Show people worlds that they haven't lived in or experienced. I want to give people a great read, a, a page-turner if possible. I want people to understand a little bit more about struggle than they might have known before. Show them what what goes into some of these seemingly charmed lives. How, although on the surface, people like... George Michael or certainly Lena Horne seemed to have it all. In some ways they did. They paid enormous prices in order to do the thing that they did. These people, pain is pain. You can look at Lena Horne, for example, and as many people did back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and say, what has she got to be upset about? Not knowing how... What what enormous sacrifices and and how much loss was involved in Lena, for example, being having to 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 maintain this impeccable face for all of Black America, to show White America a kind of Black person in the 1940s when she was making movies for MGM. She was the chosen one, Lena Horne was picked among many other young, beautiful black women for this privileged role of being an MGM star. And she was resented a lot for it. There was enormous jealousy directed toward Lena Horne, and it just, she seemed like a princess. Lena Horne had to bear a tremendously heavy mantle throughout much of her life, in order to live up to people's expectations and further the cause and do what was expected of her and to be impeccable at all times. And so that also involved um, sacrificing things in her personal life that would somehow be contrary to the cause. Fascinating story that was not apparent to most casual onlookers. So I... I I want to touch people because all of these singers that we're discussing have touched me. They've made me feel less alone. They have brought me comfort at times when I've been down. I've been able to ponder their stories and understand how they got through things that I can somehow relate to. So I guess the most important thing I want to do is to just touch people with these
2: stories. How do you like people to find you, or do you like to interact with readers and all that? Do you set up social media? Do you Have you set it up? And what's your website and social media where people can contact
3: you? Well, thank you for asking. My website is jamesgavin.com, and my email address there is james at jamesgavin.com, and it will arrive right in my inbox. And I love interacting with people. I love communication. That's what social media is all about for me. Uh, It's about making connections with people. Look, why do you do your radio show? It's the same reason why I write my books. It's because we want to make connections with people. We have these offerings that we put out into the world, and why do we do it? It's because we want to build bridges with people somehow. Don't you agree? Oh, totally.
2: That's what it's all about, about meeting people and finding
3: out what makes them tick. I think so. And, and, and John, it's the reason why you're, you're, you're teaching and, 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 and enlightening people about. Literature, because I I don't know what I... Books gave me my life. Books and and records, music gave me my entire life. I I learned how to read when I was four years old, and I discovered music when I was five years old. And I found a way to put those two things together and, and make a life out of it. But books, oh... I grew up in libraries. My bedroom in our apartment in Yonkers was filled with books from an early age. Books gave me my, they, they taught me how to think. They, they fired up my imagination. They gave me a vocabulary. They taught me how to reach for things because I, I would reach for things that were beyond me because I somehow got it in my head that I was going to, Try to read difficult stuff. I was reaching beyond my capabilities of understanding because I wanted the discipline of it. I don't know where all this impulse came from. I just wanted to better myself. I wanted to prove that I was a superior being somehow. And so I, um, I spent many of my happiest days and nights of my entire growing up in libraries, just looking at walking down the aisles, looking at books, picking uh, up anything that called to me. Between the ages of uh, 16 and 24, I worked in used uh, or new bookstores and record stores. And so uh, I admire anybody who, like you, John is opening younger people's eyes to the the glories of storytelling and literature and and history.
1: Well, I think um, it is just imperative because I think books can do something that a lot of the other sort of narrative forms, and even, you know, I love film, so I'm a huge film buff, but I think books can get to your DNA in a way um, in, in a very sort of personal and Uh, intimate way that other forms can't quite do. Um, And so, especially now, like when there's so many other, um, you know, narrative forms, visual a lot, um, I think it's just important to read.
3: Well, I wholeheartedly agree. It's the theater of the mind. I grew up loving old radio, the golden age of radio. That's the theater of the mind. You see it all unfold in your brain, and I think that that's a, a... very nurturing and healthy thing to develop that capability and not just have somebody else's imagination uh, put in front of you and watching it the way they conceived it. that's what I listen
2: to. And look at me. I turned out just (laughs) awful. (laughs) I love,
3: again, I love radio. So I, I loved doing a show like this because all people will hear is our voices, and they can just imagine the rest, but there's something so intimate about having people speak into your ear
2: really nice, yeah, and they 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 can just uh picture who I am now <laughs> <laughs> tall, dark, and handsome yes. <laughs> <laughs> With a great tan. Well, you have a wonderful radio. You have a wonderful
3: radio delivery that is soothing to the ear.
2: Well, that's all that matters, isn't it?
3: <laughs> In this medium, that is all that matters. Yes.
2: Well, it's certainly been a pleasure, and uh, we're glad you were able to join us today. Um, and of course, your book, George Michael: A Life, um, is available now, and we'll, of course, we'll have that up on the website. And and uh, again. Well, Thank you very much.
3: Al and John, what a pleasure to speak with you both. I'm delighted that you asked. Likewise, James.
2: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to
0: www.houseofmystery.com. The show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? No. This is the production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.
2: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com.
0: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me?
2: Well, good night.